Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. There was one survivor, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. Originally, when the investigators were examining the crash, they originally believed that this little girl had actually been in one of the cars that had been hit by the plane on the ground. They had no idea that she had actually been on the plane until they looked at the flight's manifest and saw that she was listed as a passenger. You see a picture of her as a little girl, now you see her as a grown lady. And as the investigators investigated further into the crash, and they went to the area of the plane where Cecilia had been seated, there they found her mother's body. And by their investigation, it became clear to them that what the mother had done as the plane was descending down, as she had gotten on the ground and surrounded her daughter, Cecilia, the little four-year-old, in such a way that where the mother would absorb the vast majority of the impact, doing all that she could to possibly save Cecilia. And she was the one out of that entire plane who survived. And there was this sense in, in which this mother gave her life in order to save her daughters. There was a sense in which she took her place. And today what I wanna talk to you about is this sense in which, this reality in which Jesus on the cross took our place. We've been in this series where we've been talking about why did Jesus die? And we've been talking about how the scripture, uh, this is such a monumentous, largest event in history type of thing where the scripture uses a number of different word pictures, metaphors, and illustrations uh, to help us understand just how big this was. And so we started out talking about how Jesus died to show us what real love is and, and how Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And, and how Paul writes, God, demonstrates he proved his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we talked about that Jesus died to show us what real love is, the Father's incredible love for us and to give us this model of how he calls his followers to, to love people. And then last week, Pastor Jericho brought a great message about how Jesus died to set us free. Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died to set us free. And so this language in the scripture about being ransomed or being redeemed, it's all this idea that he died to set us free. And today I wanna talk to you about how Jesus died to take our place. And I wanna share with you uh, really kind of three aspects, three ways in which we can think about Jesus as our substitute. And here's the first one. Jesus came as our promised substitute. And so as we read the Old Testament, there's a lot of different purposes for the Old Testament, but, but we must always remember that the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament is ultimately to promise and to look towards Jesus. He is our, he's the, the, every picture and type and shadow. So, so as we look at the Old Testament, there's, there's 
pictures that, that, that are less clear, pictures that are more clear. There are prophecies that are less clear, prophecies that are more clear, but Jesus made it clear that the Old Testament points to him after his resurrection. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection on the, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus encounters a couple of people that, that don't yet recognize that it's Jesus. And, and, and he said to them, he said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is talking Old Testament stuff here. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? So Jesus here is saying that the, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. We're gonna look at that more clearly in a minute suffer these things, and then enter his glory. And, and then it says, and beginning with Moses, so from the beginning of the Old Testament and all the prophets, so through the entire Old Testament, Jesus explained to them what was said in, look here, all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is, is, is telling us here that the Old Testament, when the times when it's more clear, times when it's less clear, is all a story of, of him coming, that he is our promised substitute. There's all these prophecies. We, Paul says the same things in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is giving what may be the clearest brief explanation of the gospel. Uh, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ took our place. And then it says this, these key words, in accordance with the scriptures. So what Paul is saying is that the death that Jesus died for us as our substitute, that it was, it was promised in the scriptures. Now when the New Testament writers talk about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And so there's lots of these little types and shadows and pictures that point to Jesus and, and everything as, as, as symbolic as when we see Abraham and Isaac. And, and Abraham is walking up the mountain and, and he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And, on, and then there's this voice that says, don't do it. And then there's this, this ram in the bushes, this ram in the thicket that becomes this substitute for Isaac, he, he dies that Isaac might live. The animal dies that Isaac might live. It's this picture uh, on this Mount Moriah, which most scholars, many scholars believe either was the exact same mountain that Jesus died on or was right next to it. And so it's this picture of this promised substitute. It's this foreshadowing, but there's nowhere in the Old Testament that is a more crystal clear picture of the promise that Jesus would die in our place, that he'd be our substitute, that he would take our place, that in Isaiah chapter 53, let me show this to you. Isaiah 53, and, and we, we see other pictures in the Old Testament on the day of atonement, this once a year that's called Yom Kippur, where, where, where there would be, the, the high priest would lay his hands on this animal as this symbolic um, picture as the, where this animal is, is taking the sins from the people. This animal was this substitute. But let me show you Isaiah 53. In verse three, Isaiah 53, verse four, it says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. There's just this substitute language over and over. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our 
transgressions. I don't know that you could see a more, more clear uh, foreshadowing towards this, these nails piercing the hands and feet of Jesus. This word transgressions, this big word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Another word for sin. The punishment that brought us peace or wholeness or, or everything being Right, the word the Old Testament idea of peace, so much bigger than we think, this kind of overall idea of complete wholeness and flourishing. So the punishment that brought us wholeness, flourishing, peace was on him. It's this substitute language, and by his wounds, we are healed. Now this is written 600 years before the time of Jesus. It's this promise, it's this prophecy. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. You, if you were writing this after Jesus died, you couldn't paint a clearer picture of Jesus as our substitute, the one who took our place. But this is written 600 years before the time of Jesus, and so when Paul says that, that, that he died and, and, and was buried, as the scripture said, he's talking about this and he's talking about so much more. I have no doubt at all that Jesus on that road to Emmaus, as he was looking through the whole Old Testament story, I have no doubt that he camped out on this one and said, how do you not see it? You almost have to have covers over your eyes or over the eyes of your heart to not see this couldn't more clearly be talking about this promised substitute whose name is Jesus. He's this promised substitute. And so this, this as, we, as we remember that Jesus promised, Jesus prophesied through the whole Old Testament, it should do some things for us on this side. One is it should build our faith. It should build our sense of confidence and the unique person and work of Jesus, that, that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the one we need. It ought to build our confidence in the person of Jesus and what he's done for us, and it ought to build our confidence in the future promises of God. If so, these, these pictures, these types, these foreshadows that, 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 were, that, that happened thousands of years before Jesus came, these incredibly clear words pointing to what Jesus would do on the cross for us, written 600 years before Jesus came, and then it all came clear, all came true in a way that, can't, that, that, that couldn't be more, more perfectly described, gives us confidence in God's future promises for us that we can look forward to. So Jesus is our promised substitute. Here's the second thing. Jesus is our perfect substitute. Jesus is our perfect substitute. And, and, and I wanna show this to you in a couple of different ways. So today we're celebrating Palm Sunday, the day where, where Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowd cheered and laid down their coats and these palms to receive him. And, and, and this day would, would, would have been what was is, uh, the Jewish month of Nisan. This Jewish month of Nisan, this would have been the 10th of Nisan. Let me show you a couple of things here. So John 12, one, it says six days before the Passover, before the Passover meal, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That just gives us a little timing context. Now we go down to verse 12. The next day, so now we're five days before the Passover meal. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival 
heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So people from all around the known world would come to Jerusalem for these high holy days. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and then it fulfills this prophecy. Daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so we say, okay, so this is the 10th of Nisan, why does this matter? So in the context, everyone is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This was the time where they remembered God's great act of deliverance in the Old Testament. And so the, the, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They'd cried out to God to deliver them. God raises up Moses, and then Moses comes and tells Pharaoh, let, let my people go. He refuses to do it. Then there's these series of plagues designed to get Pharaoh's attention that he might listen to the one true God, let the people of Israel go. And time after time, he, he does not. He refuses to listen to this command to let my people go. And then finally, the last plague would be the death of the firstborn son, and that's where we catch up here in Exodus chapter 12, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year, this month of Nisan. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose, look here, must be year-old males without defect. And so if it had a spot, if it was lame, if it was undersized, don't pick that one. Pick the best one you've got. Pick a perfect lamb. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the house where they will eat the lambs. And so, so they would put this blood over the house and then everyone who had, was under this blood ended up living. And, and so there's this Passover celebration. So each year they would celebrate God's incredible big act of deliverance, biggest act of deliverance in the Old Testament, and, and they would have this meal. And so on Nisan, the 10th, the 10th day of Nisan, which would have been the day that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, that was the day that they called Lamb Selection Day. And so that was the day that, that you would go and you would find the best lamb that you could find, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, a healthy lamb, and that would be the one that you take and then you bring it into your home. That would be the Passover lamb. And so it was on this lamb selection day that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Now, many scholars believe that at this time in Jewish history, all of the Passover lambs were raised in a little, small little town named Bethlehem. And so it was on this lamb selection day that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and, and there's this very real sense in which this crowd, without even knowing it, as they would say, Hosanna and, and, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the, the king of Israel, this is the son of David. There was this sense, without even knowing it, that, that they were looking at this lamb and saying, the lamb is worthy. And so what we see here is, is, is this whole idea. Peter talks about this idea of Jesus, the perfect lamb. 
First Peter chapter one, verse 18, he says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, that you were set free from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, Jesus is our perfect substitute. Just like they had that find that perfect lamb, that lamb without blemish. That's that, that. This was Jesus. Jesus, our perfect substitute. Paul talks about it this way. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. God made him who had no sin. You can read it. God made him who was completely perfect. God made him who was completely blameless. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. I like the way he phrases it there. It's not this that he took our sin. It says he literally became, he literally became sin for us. It's this substitute language. Have you ever been in a spot where you just wish you could have a substitute? There's a lot of things where you can get people to do unpleasant things that you don't wanna do if you're willing to pay them. But there's some things that you just can't. There are some things that are the great equalizer of the human experience. Like you can't, no matter how much money you have, you have to go to the DMV and take your own driver's test. The DMV is a great equalizer of humanity. You look around, you're like, man, no matter how much money you make, you're here right now. DMV, the dentist chair. Nobody can get a cavity filled for you. You have to get your own colonoscopy. There's no substitutes for that. There's times in life where we all just desperately wish we could trade places. A fighting with your spouse. You can't, you can't get anyone to do that for you. I mean, if there was a business where you could hire someone to fight with your spouse, there'd be money to be made. But this substitute thing it's a big deal. And so Paul says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. And if that was all it was, that would be tremendous. If all that Jesus did is take our sin away, that would be incredible. Imagine that you had a $20 million debt and you have this $20 million debt and then Jeff Bezos pays your $20 million debt for you you would be, that would be a great deal. There would be, that would be tremendous. But it doesn't stop there. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what some people call this great exchange where Jesus not only takes everything wrong with us, Away, he take, doesn't just take away all of our sin, all of our shame, all, all of our brokenness. He doesn't just take this away, he gives us all of his goodness. And so that, he says, he who knew no sin became sin so that, that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't just take the bad, he gives the good. So Jeff Bezos didn't just pay your 200 million, uh, he now gives you his 200 billion. It's that much better. I don't know how much Jeff Bezos has today. I think it changes by the day. 200 billion feels like a good guess. Seem true? My, as much as my wife buys from Amazon, it feels true. And so, uh, 
every day another Amazon package. I'm like, how would, what would we have done if we didn't have Amazon? I don't even know. Pray for me. Pray for her. Um, but this, so the thing is, he, he's, become, he's my perfect substitute. So the perfection of Jesus it really can reframe how I view my sin that what would have been a point of great shame now becomes a point of great gratitude that, that he's, his perfection, he's taken my shame, he's given me his perfection. What would have been a point of regret has become, becomes an inspiration to love and worship. And so we see on this lamb selection day, this Palm Sunday, where this, this lamb without spot or blemish, this perfect lamb, this picture of this perfect substitute. And so these people on, on this Nisan the 10th, they, they, would, they would bring in this little lamb that would live in their house for the next few days until the, the day, Nisan the 14th, where it would be sacrificed, and then Nisan, and then over that next 24-hour period, it would, this meal would be consumed, and Nisan the 15th, this Passover meal day, and, but that next few days, you've got this little lamb living in your house. And so this little lamb, at least for your kids, you know, for a few days becomes a little pet. You wonder if maybe some of them, those little kids, you know, we literally had moments where we have seen a stray cat and my kids instantly named it. We had this little cat named Stella for about 20 minutes one time. We're on this little road trip that we see this stray cat. I'm allergic to cats. My family, in spite of that, is always wanting us to get one as if they wanna kill me. And, uh, we're on this little road trip, we see this little stray cat, and it was around Christmas time, and our girls used to try to pull the, it's my Christmas wish. <laughs> it's in previous years, really spoke to my heart, I've hardened my heart towards that now. <laughs> Stella gets in our car, and they're like, oh, it's, let's name her Stella, let's keep her, and I'm like, and I just, I don't know why I was, didn't more quickly, just, I just felt trapped, and, uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want a cat, I've never wanted a cat. Any cat people here? Sorry. And so, um, and I'm like feeling trapped and they named this kid, this cat Stella. And then one of the girls opened up their door to the car. This was God's kindness to me. This was my Passover moment. I, uh, well, the girls opens the door and then Stella runs out. Of the, of the door, of the car, and then there was like a legit cat lady in the drive-through behind us, who it's like she kept cat treats so she could trap cats. <laughs> and it's like that, that little cat went by her door and then she just swiped it up and put it in her car and became cat number 29 for her. And, uh, <laughs> but in that brief little moment, that cat was, they still talk, the girls still talk. Remember when we had Stella? <laughs> the 20-minute cat we used to have? And it became personal. And, and so you wonder in those few days where that little lamb is in these people's house, if it, there was this personal connection which takes us to our third point. He is our personal substitute. Let me show you in Matthew chapter 27, we see Jesus is on trial here. He says, now it was the governor's custom on the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd 
At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a common name here. We know him just as Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate knew that there was no reason to crucify Jesus. He was looking for every reason not to, looking for a way out where he didn't put him in opposition with the Jewish leaders and opposition with the crowd. And so what he said he's gonna do, he went in and he found, went into that jail, found the worst prisoner he had, a prisoner that he thought, well, no one's gonna want this person released. It'd be as if there was some sort of serial killer in our jail, and it's like, well, let's, should we release Jeffrey Dahmer? First service, too, there were six people that felt okay to laugh about it. So, serial killer comedy's always awkward. It's, uh, you never really kind of find that sweet spot in your serial killer comedy. But it's as if he said, do we release Jeffrey Dahmer or do we release Jesus? And the people all said, Give us Jeffrey Dahmer. Barabbas was the worst prisoner in the jail. And he was trying to find a way not to have to kill Jesus. And he says, should we release? Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they'd handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today and a dream because of him. Pilate, like many of us, would do well to listen to his wife. He says, which one do you want me? But the chief priests and, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which one of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. You ever wonder what was Barabbas thinking on that day? Barabbas was on death row, and back then when somebody was on death row, they meant it. It wasn't like you're on there 30, 40 years. It wasn't like there was a series of appeals. It wasn't like you might get a, a, a last minute pardon by the governor as if that was the normal thing. He's on death row knowing any one of these days, my day's coming, my day's coming. I'm gonna be crucified as criminals were done at that, as were killed at, at that time. He's waiting for the moment where he is going to be his day. And then he hears these crowds, crowds chanting saying, crucify him, crucify him. And you can't help if wonder if he was thinking, oh, I wonder if they're talking about today being my day, where I'm going to be crucified. And then the jailer comes to his cell and opens up the door and says, Barabbas, uh, and he says, is, is today my day to be crucified? And, and then the jailer says, no, actually, you're, you're gonna be set free. And then he comes out and he sees that there's this man and the people explain, well, they, it, was, it was gonna be you or this guy Jesus called the Christ and we all cheered for you. You're the one that got set free. You're the one that got released and you can't help but wonder as Barabbas was, must have just been thinking and even the, you know, the events of the rest of the day as Jesus would be crucified, if, if the light went on brightly in his mind realizing that guy died so that I might live. See, for Barabbas, it was very, very personal. See, it's one thing to say Jesus died 
for the sins of the world. It's, another, so it's one thing to say Jesus died for all of us. It's one thing to say Jesus died for every person who's ever lived, but there's something different when we say Jesus died for me. On that night of the Last Supper when Jesus was with his friends, he says, this is my body which is given for you. It was personal for them, it's personal for us. Jesus died for us. See, you gotta think that Barabbas must have thought that's, that's my death, he's dying. Jesus took his death and Barabbas was given the freedom that Jesus deserved. Jesus bore his guilt and shame and curse and grace and, 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 and disgrace and death that Barabbas deserved. Barabbas received the release, the freedom, and the life that Jesus deserved. See, it was personal for, for Barabbas Barabbas, who faced a death sentence, lived. Jesus, who was more fully alive than any person who'd ever lived, he died. It was personal for Barabbas. There's a book by a guy named Robert Coleman where he tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked. Johnny hesitated, his lower lip started to tremble, then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. See, it was personal. Johnny wasn't just doing this for somebody, for anybody. He was doing this for his sister. Johnny grinned as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm. Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube with the ordeal almost over. His voice slightly shaky, broke the silence. He said, doctor, when do I die? Nobody had really explained the science of blood transfusions to Johnny. Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he'd agreed to donate his blood. He thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. In that brief moment, he'd made his great decision. Fortunately, Johnny didn't have to die to save the life of his sister, but he was willing, and he was willing because it was personal. He was willing to die that his sister might live, and so we have this personal substitute. In many ways, we're like Barabbas. We're like Barabbas who found himself facing a death sentence justly because of sins he had committed Yet Jesus came in, took his place, died that he might live. But there's one way in which we're very, very different from Barabbas. Barabbas didn't make the choice for himself. You see, the crowd made the choice for Barabbas. Pilate made the choice for Barabbas. But when it comes to Jesus taking our place, no crowd can make the choice for you. No individual that other than yourself can make the choice for you. It's a choice that we all have to make. Are we going to allow Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could never live, 
who died the death that we deserve to die, are we going to allow him to take our place? Are we going to allow him to be our substitute? In a moment, we're going to take communion together. This is something that Jesus told Christians to do, to remember what he would do on the cross for us, it's a moment for us to remember the fact that he gave his body for us and shed his blood for us. It's this moment that we remember that what he's done for us, the, the, this, the, the display of love that he gave for us on the cross, the way in which he set us free through what he did on the cross and the way in which he took our place. He says, this is my body given for you, this substitute where he took our place. And, and it's also, there's this sense where we also are reaffirming. Every time we take this bread and take this juice, this wine, every time we do this, we're reaffirming our belief that he's our substitute, that he lived the life we could never live, perfection, he died the death we deserve to die so that ultimately his perfection would be credited to us, all of our sin would be credited to him. We're sort of reaffirming that belief as we take these elements together. And so why don't we pray? And maybe some, maybe some of you, maybe in the past, if you've experienced moments like these, you've not even known should you take the elements because you've not even really known if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, his substitute role on our behalf, but maybe today even something has clicked in your heart and in your mind where you're like, oh wow, this really is true. The story of Jesus dying on the cross, it really is true. The story of the resurrection that we'll celebrate in a week, it really is true. This incredible love story the story of him dying to set us free, the story of him dying in our place, it really is true. And if that's you today, if something's clicked in your mind and your heart where you're like, you know what, this is what I need. I need what Jesus did. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he's my only hope. I believe he died in my place. I believe he rose from the dead. I wanna follow Jesus forever. You can even just declare that decision, that commitment, even by just taking these elements in a moment, a physical demonstration of you trusting in what Jesus has done, his dying as our substitute, his resurrection from the dead, your commitment to live as his follower. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that the cross means the ultimate demonstration of love, this giving of himself as a ransom so that we might be set free from all the things that enslave us. And this incredible substitution, taking our place, taking our sin, shame, and guilt upon himself, giving us all of his perfection and holiness and all of his goodness. We thank you for Jesus' broken body. We thank you for his shed blood. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So as we approach 
Easter this week. Let us ask the Lord to cause the wonder of all that Easter weekend means to become more and more real in our lives. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.